Good morning. My name is Anne Marie Shambaugh, and this morning's scripture reading is from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7 and 22 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to all of you, and Merry Christmas. I hope we'll see you all tonight for our Christmas Eve services, where we'll hear more of the traditional Christmas story readings. Uh, I don't know if you all are familiar with this uh, classic movie, probably most of you are, but about five minutes into The Wizard of Oz, uh, young teenager Dorothy Gale has this uh, really frightening, uh, frustrating run-in with the uh, sour old town spinster Elvira Gulch. And she runs home to go tell her aunt and her uncle and the farmhands and and get them to listen. But they're all busy trying to do work and they don't have time for her. And her aunt, in frustration, finally says, Dorothy, will you just go somewhere and not be any trouble? And uh, Dorothy does what I was good at doing as a teenager. I took uh, my issue and pointed it out at uh, someone else, right? Like, yeah, a world without any trouble, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Uh, But that's the launch to one of the most well-known songs of the 20th century. Dorothy looks off wistfully and starts singing about a place somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Way above the chimney tops, troubles melt like lemon drops. Dorothy wonders about this. In this monochrome world of Kansas of the 1930s, because there's this longing in her heart to be transported from a world of frustration and fear and brokenness and conflict to a place of beauty and peace and happiness somewhere at the end of the rainbow. Was Dorothy right? Is there a technicolor dream of wonder and beauty at the end of the rainbow? 
what is it that lies at the end of your rainbow? What is the pot of gold that, that you're dreaming of or hoping for? For many of us, it's the American dream. You know, it used to be the, the white picket fence and the home in the suburbs and a station wagon and three well-scrubbed kids. And uh, not long ago, it, it turned into something like you know, making a killing in the stock market. What is it, though? Maybe for you, it's finding your soulmate. Maybe it's getting that dream job or, or having a job at all. Maybe it's not having to worry about money. Maybe it's travel around the world. Maybe it's being free from pain and difficulty. The Bible definitely pictures life as a journey towards a destination. Do you have a picture of what your life is heading towards? More importantly, maybe we want to ask, what lies at the end of God's rainbow? What does God say the end is heading towards, and and how do we get there? This revelation that God gives to the Apostle John tells us how God will bring about his purposes to destroy sin and evil and even death and bring his people home to him and, and redeem his people and the whole world for his glory and for our good. Back in Genesis, we learned that God created the heavens and the earth and everything God created was good. We, we sang about this Hebrew word shalom, which means fullness. It means everything working the way it's supposed to, flourishing. But we don't live in that world. And yet in Revelation, we get a picture of a renewed or a new heavens and a new earth. In, in Genesis, sin and death and pain invade the world and bring sorrow and suffering. And in Revelation, sin is destroyed and that curse is removed. In, in Genesis, mankind is banished from paradise. And in Revelation, mankind is restored to paradise. In Genesis, man is sent out from God's presence. And and as we heard in Revelation, now the dwelling of God is with his people again. And all the way through, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the one who accomplishes all this. In chapters 19 and 20 that that we didn't hear today, we see Jesus as the conquering hero who finally destroys Satan and death and even hell. He delivers God's people through death into eternal life. And, And here in the last two chapters of God's word, all of the strands of the Bible's message are brought together in this glorious consummation, this magnificent ending that God says, all things are heading towards. We started this Advent series looking at the home that God created for us and intended for us to live in, a place where everything worked the way it was supposed to. And then we saw a couple of weeks ago how we got lost, how all of us are lost, that we rebelled against God and and now we are all prodigals. We are all wandering, homeless, broken inside and living in a broken world. And last week, Tom shared the good news of Jesus, a Savior who left his home in heaven to come and rescue us and bring us home to him. And so we live in in what theologians call the already and the not yet. Between Jesus' first and his second advent, and as God's children through faith in Christ, we have 
seen and tasted that the Lord is good. But we're still waiting for Jesus to return and and finish the work that he started. And Jesus promises his followers as he leaves them that he is going to prepare a place for them to take them to be with him where he is forever. That's what we're made for. That's what we want to look at this morning because that's what Christmas is about. That's why Jesus came. We are citizens of another world. What will it be like? And how does it affect the way that we live here and now? If you haven't already, you can open your Bible to Revelation 19, pull out one of those black Bibles in the chair underneath you, and if you do, that's on page 1232. In that Pew Bible or whatever phone or app that you use, if you need a Bible in another language, uh, we have some at the back of the worship center and our tech people would be glad to provide you with one. We're looking at Revelation 21 today and three features of our eternal home. What is that going to look like? First of all, God is going to make this creation new and glorious. We are going to finally experience perfection This world is going to be perfected and be what it is supposed to be. That's the point of verse 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now, whether that means there's literally no more sea, the, the point is the imagery there because John is picking up on the biblical imagery of the sea as a place of uncontrollable power and and chaos and and danger. Whether that means that the the old sea is gone and there's a new, renewed, perfected one or or whether we're living in some kind of a a different world without great masses of water. The point is not whether or not God's going to take us off to a, a new solar system. I mean, he could if he wanted to. But the hope of the Bible is that God is going to renew the heavens, even the heavens where sin first started in Satan's rebellion and this earth on which we live. God is going to renovate the whole thing. And and whether we understand that as destruction and rebirth or whether it's renewal and restoration, everything broken and futile and painful and wrong and cursed is going to be done away with. We live in a physical world that in a lot of ways it reflects the beauty, the creativity, the goodness of God. But think about what the world will look like. No more strip mining, no more pollution, no more slash and burn deforestation, no more deadly tornadoes, no more catastrophic tsunamis. The creation itself will be at peace. It will be perfected. No more disease. No more relentless, tiresome struggle to survive. Death itself will be destroyed. We won't have to kill anything else to live. Not plants, not animals. We will be at peace with all of the rest of creation. It's amazing to think of, isn't it? When God makes all things new, that the creation will be renewed and perfected so that it It aligns with who God is and what we were made to experience. And God is going to make us physically and and bodily new as well. 
You know, Greek philosophers like Plato, they believed that the physical body was, was sort of a weight. It was a drag on sort of the pure imminence of the spirit. And, and so the goal was to escape our bodies. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the Christian worldview. The Bible has a very different destiny for God's people. And yes, right now, when believers die, the body goes in the ground and the spirit returns to the Lord who made it. For those who die in the Lord, their souls are at rest in God's presence. But that is only temporary. Even in Revelation, we get a picture of the saints under God's throne crying out, How long, O Lord? When Christ returns, all are resurrected. And here in Revelation 21, we see God making all things new, including our bodies. Look at verse 4, what John pictures. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will still have eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. Think about that. No more death. No more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more saying goodbye to loved ones. The body that we know now, whether it dies and goes into the grave to be resurrected or whether we're alive when the Lord returns, it will be changed. Because this body hurts and it wears out. But we will have new resurrection bodies like Christ has. The point is not good riddance to the body, but Lord Redeem this body and make it like yours. We will be raised like Christ with bodies that will never hurt again, never die again, never cry again, except maybe for joy and maybe in worship. You know, there are a lot of people, a lot of us who struggle with our bodies. Some people have deformities. Some have lost limbs or are paralyzed. Some can't see or hear. Some struggle with disease and pain and infirmity. And God promises even in in this age that he can have purposes in a man being born blind in order to ultimately display his glory. But God has no intention of leaving anyone in disability eternally who trusts in him. When God makes all things new, he will make our bodies new. And secondly, that means we will live in a place of peace forever. A place of perfection forever and a home of peace forever. We will have peace with God forever. He will redeem and restore all our relationships. Look at what John says in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling of God is With man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. Oh yes, for us now here, we know Christ and we know him. We experience him, his spirit dwells in us. But Jesus promises to never leave us until the end of the age. And yet in 2 Corinthians, Paul points out that To be at home in the body, we are away from the Lord because we walk by faith and not by sight. And so there's this painful reality for us now where we are away from the Lord. Something greater is coming in our relationship with God. As as Peter writes out, 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And one day we will see him face to face. We will be at peace with God in his presence forever. And we will experience that because of what Christ has done. And what he will finish to make us morally, spiritually new. One of the greatest frustrations of this age for God's people is not what's wrong with the world and not the troubles that are out there, but what's wrong with me. The frustration that we still sin. I think Romans 7 describes this painful reality where Paul says, I I find this law in my inmost self, but I delight in God's law, but in my body I find another law at work, at war with the law of my mind. That war is the most painful experience for us as believers in this age. We want to be holy and we fall short. We want to love and instead we're critical and complaining. And we say hurtful things. We want to worship and our hearts are cold. We want to be pure and and we find our minds and our hearts filled with impurity. And yes, we experience growth and progress as the Spirit helps us. But what we long for is deliverance from this tendency to leave the Lord that we love. And that is what God promises He will heal forever in us. We will be not just partially new as we are now, but completely new. Look at verse 2. John says, I I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the bride of Christ? It's, It's the church. It's God's people. John goes on to say in verse 27, Nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a picture of the people of God made pure and whole and ready to be with our bridegroom forever, to be with the Lord Jesus. And when God makes all things new, he makes his church, he makes his people new by the work of his Son. In verse 11, John sees this picture of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, having the glory of God in it. It's radiance like a jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Can you think about that? That that God would purify us so completely by Jesus' blood that we would shine with his glory. And there's nothing impure in us ever again. That people would be able to look right through you, through me, and see nothing but the spotless radiance of Jesus Christ. Does your heart long for that? That's the future that God has in store for his people. And then look ahead. We didn't read this, but in the beginning of verse 22, John says, there's a picture of the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God. And on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now we'll have access to the tree of life again. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 
the healing of the nations. Here's a picture of the people of God from every tribe and tongue and language and race healed, united, at peace with one another. No more division, no more war, no more conflict, no more angry arguments, no locks on doors, no fear of going to the wrong neighborhood, no jails or armies or wars. And John pictures this city with gates that never close because there's no danger. There's no threat. There's nothing to disturb the peace of God's people. Imagine what that will be like. We will still work and create and invent. We will still be working and using our gifts, but it will be free from ugliness and and competition and and brokenness. That's the third thing. We will live with a beautiful, fulfilled purpose forever. In the end of chapter 21, John says, twice, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the heavenly Jerusalem. They will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it. Think about that. There's still nations, there's still culture, there's still work, there's still art, there's still play, but all of it is redeemed. Work is no longer broken with frustration and curse and disappointment. The, The musician, the artist, the singer who longs to make something beautiful for the glory of Christ All of our limitations will be removed and and now we will be able to sing and make music and, and work and develop a renewed heavens and earth for the glory of Christ with nothing holding us back. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? There will be no more envy, no more competition, no more fear, no more pride wrapped up in it. But we will use our gifts for glorious, positive things, for the, for the beauty of Christ. That's what we were made for. That's the purposes of God for creation and for His people. Look back in verse 5. In verse 5, God says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's a promise, and He enforces the certainty of it. In, in two important ways. One, he is seated on the throne of the universe. The one who rules over heaven and earth says, I am in charge of all things, and I will do this. And he underscores it by saying, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is going to happen. It's not a pie-in-the-sky dream of a Kansas farm girl. It is reality written in the words of the eternal God and secured through the sacrificial death and resurrection and ascension of His Son. God wants us to have the assurance that no matter how much evil, no matter how much brokenness and pain and sorrow and frustration we see now, and even no matter how much good and beauty and, and, and joy that we can experience in this life. His plan is to bring us home, to be with Him, where everything is infinitely more glorious 
than we have experienced here. The very best that this life has to offer is only a shadow of what is to come for God's people. And we will be where we are supposed to be. That is where God's rainbow, God's promise leads to the declaration, now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. And finally, this story ends with the greatest invitation you will ever receive and the most serious warning that you will ever hear. From his glorious throne, God says in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, I will give this inheritance. I will be his God and he will be my son, just like the son whom he loves. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, which is the second death. The marvelous thing about this city of God is that the gates are wide open. In the garden of God, when we sinned, when our parents sinned, God set an angel with a flaming sword so that we would not go back and eat the tree of life and live in our brokenness forever, nor approach the presence of a holy God and be destroyed in our sinfulness. In his first advent, Jesus came so that the sword of God's judgment would fall on him. And he would pay the penalty. He would take the fall for us. And now in Revelation, the angels stand by the gates of the city of God with the gates wide open to invite all who will come to accept the payment that Christ has made for us and come and drink from the water of life without cost. We see in verse 27 that that those only whose names are in the Lamb's book of life will experience that reality forever. And that is none of us by nature. All of us. All of us are immoral, idolaters, liars. But by God's grace, through the work of Christ on the cross, you can go from death to life. You can be rescued, redeemed, reconciled, and have this inheritance. The spirit and the bride, God says, invite you. The bride is the church, and it is my privilege on behalf of the people of God to invite you, if you have never come, to come, come and take God's gift of life through his son, Jesus. He wants you to be there. He wants you to live with him eternally for what you were made to experience. God, the spirit invites you to come. God tells you through his word and by the work of his spirit speaking to you that he wants you to have this eternity. The whole Bible is a story about how God through his son has opened the way into life through Christ for all who will come in repentance and faith. Don't stand at a distance. Don't scoff. 
Come home. Come home. The Spirit and the Bride say. Because that is what Christmas is about. That is the hope of Christmas. That's the meaning of Christmas. That Jesus left his throne in heaven to be born in poverty. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died a sacrificial death in our place. And he rose from the grave to prove that he is who he is. And that he has power over death. And he is ascended to heaven where he now rules at the right hand of the Father. And he promises to return to judge sin and to undo the curse for all who trust in him. And so when when we come to know that, it it does some things in us too. First, it, it gives us a perspective on life that we really need. Knowing that our home is with Jesus protects us on the one hand from a bitter cynicism And on the other hand, from a naive optimism. And man, do we need that. And just for example, I mean, did you know that violent crime is at the lowest point it's been in 25 years? You wouldn't expect that from watching the news, right? We are safer now than we have been in decades. We live longer, healthier lives, and we're eradicating diseases. And in many ways, education and freedom are expanding around the globe. But but it doesn't look that way from the things that we hear on the news, right? You think society is collapsing. And yet at the same time, yeah, the gap between the rich and the poor is increasing and, and racism and bigotry are alive and well and the world is still a violent, broken, ugly place. And we can go down the list for any social, economic, or political issue or problem or challenge, right? And we're tempted to think on the one hand that if we just get the right people or the right policies or the right programs or, or whatever, then things will be awesome. It'll be great. And on the other hand, we're tempted to think that, man, nothing's getting better. All we can see is everything going wrong. And, and so why hope and why bother? And, and, and we can just retreat into cynicism. And knowing that this world is not our home and it's not ultimately going to be right until Jesus comes again gives us perspective that we need. We don't panic. We don't give up. We realize that there are limits on how good this world is going to get. And that gives us a realistic hope. Not cynicism, not naive optimism, but a realistic hope. It gives us realism about our jobs. In this world, our our jobs are still going to be cursed with frustration and brokenness and disappointment. Work is not a curse. Work comes in before the curse, but work is cursed now as a result of sin in this world. But it can also be the place where God is shaping my character. And and as followers of Christ, it becomes the place where I use my gifts and my skills to be a blessing to the world around me. I don't put my hope in my career. What I can earn, what I can achieve, what I can be recognized for, it's never going to ultimately satisfy what I was made for. Realistic hope gives us patience with frustrating people at the holidays. Because we're those people, and we're going to be around those people, and we're all going to be broken. All of us, until we see Jesus face to face. And yes, there's healing, yes, there's growth. But that makes us more humble 
and more confident about ourselves at the same time. Do you see that? I'm a work in progress. And every person that I meet is a work in progress. We are all works of God's grace. And none of us are what we will be. The work won't be done until we see Jesus. But I do work with God's empowering spirit and by his word to make progress. But but that helps me be more humble about myself and more gracious towards others. But then also more confident. Because I know I'm not supposed to be perfect. And I only will be when I see Jesus. And, And so it helps me give grace to myself and to others. And it lets us give people to grieve and and to not be in the holiday spirit. And I'm not saying that about me. Many of you know my mom passed away about a month ago. And this people have been very gracious. And I really appreciate that. I'm just talking about all of us. There, There are a lot of people for whom the holidays are hard. It's hard because it can bring up loneliness and grief and longing. Christmas can be great. But it can be hard for some people too. And and recognizing that Christ is the one who gives us realistic hope means we don't have to force people to be happy. They don't have to be in a holiday spirit. We walk with them. We listen. We we give them space. And and we we love them where they are. Because Christmas is awesome. But but it's, you know, we can just build it up into this big expectation, right? Of, Of what it ought to look like. Christmas is only pointing us to what it's going to be one day forever. And that gives us the ability to give grace to one another in this season. G.K. Testerton, a Christian uh, author, philosopher, uh, I, I highly recommend him. The language is a little old. He wrote in the 20s and 30s and 40s, but just an amazing wit and uh, insight into human character. Very funny, self-effacing, very insightful. Chesterton wrote this. The modern philosopher tells me again and again that I am in the right place, but I still felt depressed. When I heard that I was in the wrong place, in other words, this world is not my home, my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring because I knew why I could feel homesick at home. You know, at the end of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy is transported back to her black and white sepia tone world of Kansas, and, and she wakes up with all her family and friends around her, and she happily concludes, there's no place like home. You know, it's a little frustrating, honestly. For one thing, you know, it's the first really bad, it was all a dream ending. Like, thanks for starting that, right? Like, I watched the whole season of Dallas, and it was all a dream. (laughs) Dorothy ends up back on her farm, you know, and and I know I'll probably hear from Pastor Tom and some others afterwards, but if you've seen Oz, it's hard to be excited about Kansas, (laughs) right? Especially if it's technicolor, you know, and... But more seriously, nothing is resolved. It was all a dream. Dorothy still lives in a world where she's in the way of adults who don't have time to listen to her problems. And Miss Gulch is still out there somewhere going to get the sheriff to take her dog away. It's not been fixed. We don't don't need Kansas. 
The answer is not back home again in Indiana or or any place here. We are longing, our hearts are longing because they're made for a real home, a real lasting home where everything is the way it's supposed to be, including us, because we are the biggest problem in this world. God put that desire, that longing in you because you were made for him. That's what you were made for. Can we let that be our hope and our longing and even our fulfillment this Christmas? Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us this blessed hope. Because we live in a broken world and we don't want to just believe something to to help us sleep better at night. We need true hope. We need truth. Help us not to fall into the trap of fixing our hopes on jobs or relationships or houses or money or health or travel or any of those things. Or even on having the perfect Christmas. Help us, God, to fix our hope on you, on your promise. We thank you that one day, by your word, through the work of Christ, we will see you face to face. Help us. Help us to hang on to that hope, to live in light of it with realism and faith. And help us as your people to live here like citizens of where we will live forever, our eternal home. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.